1. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works. No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Then to our catechism, in what is often described as the most glorious question and answer of the catechism. One of the very reasons why it is so nice that we can recite these things together. Because question and answer 60 is worth reciting regularly. And reciting not just as an act of repetition, but as a genuine understanding and conviction concerning the Word of God. I hope that all of us, as we say these answers together, and especially question and answer 16, are absolutely convinced of the truth of it. So Lord's Day 23, we'll start with question and answer 59. But how does it help you now that you believe all this? That I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. And why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, for only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. This the church does believe. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come now to that element of our faith that is said to be the 
the teaching, the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. That is the lesson of the Reformation, of course. The Reformation was fought over this very truth. You remember, of course, how Martin Luther came to be very convicted of this truth in his study of the book of Romans when he came to understand that the just shall live by faith and that liberated him and indeed it unleashed upon the world such a powerful force, such a remarkable event that here we are in Wellenport worshiping in the same way, believing the same truths, freed by the same gospel and rejoicing in the same God. This precious truth was buried, was almost lost, was almost forgotten, but by God's grace and in God's mercy was found and once again given its place of such importance within the church that it's regularly held before God's people and held before them as the very source of their confidence and comfort, their joy and their thanksgiving. No dry doctrinal affirmations here. This is truth that builds and sustains joy and comfort and confidence in the hearts of all of God's people. There is, in many ways, no more precious, no more powerful truth in all of the the catechism than in question and answer 60. No more remarkable, no more amazing, no more wonderful, no more almost unbelievable truth than what is found here in Lord's Day 23. Indeed, there is something about our human nature that resists this precious and beautiful truth, something that makes events like the Reformation a necessity. There are and there consistently continue to be in our own personal lives and in the church community a tendency to forget, to leave behind, to resist and reject this truth. To instead prefer a gospel that's a little more, you might say, masculine, a little more, uh, you have to do it yourself. Come on, you have to be the one who accomplishes these things. You are brought in by grace, maybe, but you have to stay there by your own good works. Saved by Jesus, yes, but maintained by your own salvation, your own righteousness, rather. This is the natural inclination of all men. This is your and my inclination to believe this, to think this. We indeed struggle with this very thing. We struggle with this in so many ways. We struggle with this when we deal with congregations, when we deal with fellow congregants who themselves are broken and struggling and and troublesome and painful and sinful. And we forget that they stand before the face of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, as though they'd never sinned or been a sinner. God looks at them as though they were His perfectly obedient son or daughter. We see them quite differently. We say to God, you got it all wrong. You don't know this member. They are nothing like what you think. We argue with God on this point all the time. Not only in our relationships with each other, but in our own experience of God's grace. We, we struggle, we doubt, we wonder. A struggling and a doubt and a wondering that makes us or motivates us to try and prove that we do belong, that we are the people that ought to be redeemed, that we deserve some measure of blessing. We're so defensive when people criticize us because we can't admit that we need help. We are so aggressive in our assertions about our good works because we can't imagine what it would mean if we weren't. Yet there is in this question and answer and in this Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism such rich and profound veins of comfort that we could hardly ever drain them. We could hardly ever empty them. 
For in this teaching, we find ourselves confronted with the wonders of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Indeed, that's the way that we ought to see the beginning of this Lord's Day in its first question when it asks, how does it help you that you believe all this? How does it help you? That's a modern question. That's a question that we are so focused on in our day. What's the benefit to me? Where's the payoff? What do I get out of this? We've been in the classroom for lo these many Sundays. Beginning in Lord's Day 8, you remember. In Lord's Day 8, we started with the doctrine of the Trinity. Because in Lord's Day 7, we were asked, what must a Christian believe? And we were told that we must believe the the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as summarized for us in the Apostles' Creed. And, And so we began this study of the Apostles' Creed, and we learned about God the Father and His sovereign creation and His providential dealing with all of life. We learned about the Son of God in the flesh, Lord and Christ. We learned about His suffering and His death and resurrection, His ascension and session at the Father. Father's right hand. We learned about the Holy Spirit and His outpouring upon the church. We learned about what He's going to accomplish for us by His power in this life. Now after all of that, all of that theological, doctrinal truth, some of which has been challenging, all of which has had Jesus at the center, we come to the question that students inevitably ask in our day, what's the point? Is this going to be on the test? Do we have to know this? What's the point? Where's the graduation, the the diploma, the benefit? Is this going to make my life better? Is this going to make me happier? Will I get a better job because of this? What's the point? Or is this just instructions in morality? Is this just information that is intended to help me to manage, to navigate the character of this life? Is this just how to make God happy? Is that what I'm being taught here? Is that what this is all about? Oh no, says the catechism, the benefit is eternal, the benefit is glorious, the benefit is beyond your expectation to know all of these truths, this God, this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who in Jesus Christ redeems for himself a precious and sustained people in his love. All of these truths teach us that by faith we are righteous before God and an heir to life everlasting. Does that make us happier? It ought to. It ought to without question. Does that make our lives a little easier to live? Again, it ought to, without question. But it ought to impress us, it ought to move us beyond all else, before anything else, that the enormity of this confession means that we are perfectly redeemed in Jesus Christ for all eternity. Can you think of what that means? That means that you... Now, today, believer, you who hold Jesus Christ as Lord, you now are more secure eternally than Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. Can you imagine that? You are more secure eternally than they are. They were subject to the fall. You cannot be lost. You are as secure eternally, maybe not as happy, but as secure eternally as the saints who are in heaven. There is no one who is more secure in heaven than on earth who believes in Jesus Christ. Your eternal security is so complete and, and, and total that it cannot be lost in Jesus Christ. That's a profound benefit. That's a remarkable encouragement. And that's something that we don't always think about. 
In part, we don't think about it because we live in a culture that presses against us and challenges us to see the world in a particular way. We are a people, unfortunately, who have become way too immediate, too in the moment, too right now. How does it benefit me in this second we want to know? How does it affect my living, my happiness, my material success right now? Even as we live in a society that has become anti-thought, anti-reading, anti-studying. What benefit does it that we know these things, have studied these things, have learned these many doctrinal truths? In our society, if it's not visual and if it's not in quick bursts and if it's not entertaining, we don't spend time on it. There's even an acronym for it. Too long, didn't read. You can put that over the doctrines of the church. You can put that over books like John Calvin's Institutes, over great works, even like the Catechism and the Confession. Too long, didn't read. That's the world in which we live. And we've become way too materialistic. If we can't touch it, if we can't turn it over in our hands, it's not real. It's not really important. Words, ideas, assurances. Can you buy those things on Amazon's Prime Day? If you can't, is it really worth anything? But it's also because, in part, our natural inclination resists this glorious truth. Surely being religious and being spiritual, indeed being Christian, is really about a lifestyle, isn't it? It's it's about decisions and choices and morality and doing the right thing and not the wrong thing. Indeed, the benefit of going to church, the benefit of listening to a sermon is you get something out of it. Isn't that what we hear when people leave a worship service? I I didn't get anything. Oh, I got a lot out of that one. We get something. That's what it's for. We're there to to be consumers, to, to benefit, something we can take into our week and live with. It's learning how to have the good life, how to have a successful marriage, how to have a purpose driven life, how to raise well adjusted children. Surely the benefit of religious study is learning how to to be moral. Why do we go to church? Why do we go to Bible study? Why do we go to catechism? Why do we go to cadets and kingdom seekers? So that we can live well. But the catechism's answer challenges us on this perspective. It challenges us in this answer that it gives to us. It says the benefit, the, the, the help that you gain from knowing all of this is that you know how God sees you. You know how he judges you. You know how he views you. And now ask yourself, how important is that to you? Indeed, is that a matter of priority in your life? Is that something you think about? For know that all men one day will. Definitely when we stand before the Lord, Or when he returns, then the question of what God says about us will be the only question that needs answering. Our money will be meaningless. Our families will be meaningless. Our successes will be meaningless. The only thing that will matter is what that sovereign God says about you. But it's not only in such a future event that we need to worry about these sorts of things. It's also in the day-to-day activity of life. A life that is bruising, a life that is difficult, a life that's burdensome, that's full of trials. In the midst of all of your day-to-day activities, as you go forth into this week in order to serve, as you get into your car, do you dare get into your car to go to work tomorrow morning? Do you dare? Because if God is against you, 
If God's anger rests upon you, if his judgment is stalking your footsteps, then I wouldn't get into your car tomorrow morning, for you don't know what judgment may fall upon you or when. If God is against you, then can you live in this life with any kind of confidence? Even in in the quiet of our own hearts, don't we ask that? Don't we sometimes lay in bed at night and wonder, Who are we? What is our identity? How do we see ourselves? How do others see ourselves? How do we become the people we want to be? How do we achieve success in this life? For us, these are all pressing and personal questions. And sometimes too late we realize that how God views us is the matter and the issue of greatest significance. If God is for us, who can be against us? We're told. And when we lift up our eyes off of our smartphones and look around, we discover that there are vital truths, there are foundational matters, there are serious issues that need answering in this world. Our world wants to distract us, wants to keep us from thinking about these things. But the truth is, all men have eternity worked in their heart, as the Word of God teaches us in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11. And all men know God and yet reject Him, as Paul teaches in Romans 1.21. And all that matters is what God thinks of us. We may find Bible study, catechism, and a second service attendance a chore, but what is the help of all these things, asks the catechism? What's the point? Well, the point is eternal. In Christ we are right with God and heirs of everlasting life. But what does this mean? What does it mean to be right with God? How are you right with God, we want to ask. And now there are two voices that speak to us. Question answer 60 has two voices, two words, two speakers. One who tells us a glorious truth, a majestic truth, a worth memorizing truth. And the other one tells us a lie. Well, half a lie. There's always a bit of truth in the lie, isn't there? Voice number one is the first one. Even though my conscience, my conscience, that's voice one. My conscience accuses me. Well, what does it accuse me of? Of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of having never kept any of them, and of being still inclined toward all evil. What does that conscience say? It says we've done nothing good. There is nothing in us of any worth, and that we are utterly and completely destined for eternal damnation. That's who you are, says your conscience. You're hopeless. You're helpless. You're utterly under the dominion of sin. Give up now. You are worthless. You are worthless. And then what does the second voice say? The second voice speaks to us with words like sheer grace. Without any merit of my own. Grants and credits. Perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. That of Christ. So that I've never, or that I'm viewed by God as though I'd never been a sinner or sinned. As though I was as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. Listen to that second voice, people of God. Listen to his words. He doesn't say to you, in your own strength, you've managed to prove your worth. He speaks of a foreign righteousness, not one of your own, 
but one that is imputed to you, given to you, credited to you. You remember Abram believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In the accounts of that man of God, God said righteous. Poured into his life the righteousness of Christ through faith. A perfect righteousness. No spot or stain. No failure or error. Jesus is the architect that made this righteousness for us. He is the one who rose from the dead and whose righteousness is perfect. A satisfactory righteousness. There is there, there, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not 99.99% satisfactory that you have to add 0.01% to. Perfect satisfactory righteousness so that clothed in that garment you shine as though you were the very son or daughter of God, righteous in every respect. Indeed, God says, His voice says to you today, believer, you who are united to Christ by faith, you are my son You are my daughter, loved deeply and perfectly, welcomed with open arms, forever right with me. As to the fulfilling of the law, flawless. As to failing, never. As to the deserving of the reward of righteousness, perfectly deserving. As to the judgment seat of God, innocent. That's the voice of We need to hear. That's the voice that needs to speak words of assurance to our souls every day. That's the voice that we need to revel in as we struggle in this life. For struggle we do. The conscience that's lying to us lies to us very craftily. For there is an element in truth, element of truth to its lies. It is true. We falter daily. We sin too often. We rebel when we should submit. We struggle with the law of God. We have a natural inclination toward evil. The good we want to do, we do not. The evil we do not want to do, that we do. And for these things, we must grieve and repent in the utter assurance that we will be received in Jesus Christ and forgiven of all our sins. Yet the trouble with our conscience is it uses words like all and never, and still, speaking to the consciences of believers united to Christ, redeemed in Him, who know their only comfort in life and in death is that they belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. And it says to such redeemed saints, you are altogether bad. You are still wicked. You are never going to be saved. Worthless, wicked, and hopeless. That's your condition. That's your identity. And so often that is what we struggle with. We believe the lies of our conscience. We hear its condemnation and we speak our amen. I am such. Unworthy of love unworthy of blessing, unworthy of salvation. There's a lovely story that is told about the death of Moses. It is referenced in the book of Jude, though it's not recorded there. The reference concerns Michael the archangel who was sent by God to bury Moses. And he's met at the body of Moses there, dead on the mountain, Having been shown the promised land, 
He's met at that body by the devil. And the devil says to Michael, this one belongs to me, for he is a murderer. And the devil's not wrong. He did murder an Egyptian. What will Michael now say? What can Michael possibly say to the devil who has it right, sins got it right? He had committed that sin. There was wickedness in his heart. Indeed, Moses' being unable to enter into the promised land was because of his grievous beating of the Savior of the rock so that water could come out. Surely, if anyone would not be saved, it's this man, Moses. But this is the one of whom Michael said to the devil, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Words that echo those familiar words out of Zechariah 3 where Zechariah stands, or Joshua rather, the high priest stands in the garments of filth and the devil there is to accuse him. God, you've got to condemn this guy. Look how wicked he is. I can start listing his sins for you. I can tell you all the thoughts, all the actions, all the words, all the ways in which this man has sinned. But before the devil can even open his mouth, the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And he is then clothed in the garments of righteousness so that Joshua goes from being a homeless leper cast out from outside of the camp to a prince standing before the very face of God. That is what God does for you, believer. When your sins rise up to accuse you, when your conscience says no good, no good, no good, God in His Son says enough. This is my daughter. This is my son clothed in the righteousness of Christ, washed clean and justified, declared at the tribunal innocent, never having sinned or been a sinner, as perfectly righteous as Christ was righteous for me, or before me. What a comfort there is in these words then. There are, of course, more blessings to any study of the gospel than these, But surely this is the biggest one. To know that God has declared us innocent. I mean, you can get up in the morning with that truth. You can go to work with that truth. You can live with that truth, guarded in your heart, confident in your life. As you face the challenges of this fallen world, you can take out that truth and do battle against your enemies with it. Whenever your conscience comes to claim you for sin and rebellion and says, there's nothing you can do, you can't beat me, I am greater than you, you can say, but God has declared me righteous. When we struggle, when we suffer, when we lay in bed at night and remember, as the psalmist says in Psalm 25, verse 7, the sins of our youth, when our guilt and shame well up and make us defensive, make us lash out and make us angry with those around us, when we think that we have to defend ourselves because we're being attacked, we can hear again the sovereign voice of our God speaking as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. You can go into the midst of a trial. You can face the brokenness of this world and the suffering knowing that your beloved Father who cherishes you will not cause you to suffer unnecessarily. Oh yes, suffering is still part of the Christian life. It was for Jesus who had to suffer so greatly. But his suffering was not wasted and nor is ours. The Father who loved him more powerfully and more pointedly at that moment of his death loves us with just as great a love in Christ. 
To know then that the living, loving, sovereign, righteous, and holy God looks upon us as children of God, beloved in Him, ought for every believer be the greatest and most profound comfort and joy. This is the identity that we are to take into this week and into all of our lives. And this is the identity that our world, our flesh, and our enemy, the devil, are going to try and endlessly push us off of. They're going to say to us, define yourself in other terms. Define yourself in terms of your sexuality. Are you homosexual? Are you heterosexual? Those are the questions that matter. Define yourself in terms of your income level. Are you lower middle class, upper middle class? Where are you? Define yourself in terms of your success. How are you as a parent? How are you as a person? Your popularity, your experiences, all of these things, the world will say, that's important. That's your identity. That's what you wear upon your cloak in order to show the world that you're worthy. Those are your marks of distinction. But whatever you do, says our world, our flesh, and the devil, do not think about what God has done in Jesus Christ. Do not think about how He loves you in a perfect way in Jesus Christ. And the truth is, the unfortunate truth is, we quickly drop this gift of grace the moment we leave the church service. Oh, we hear it in the service and our hearts are comforted or ought to be. But the truth is, then we go home and we treat others like we're not justified. We treat our employees, we treat our coworkers, we treat our neighbors, our spouses, our children like our worth is entirely wrapped up in our abilities. Our pride rises up and demands our attention. Our thinking about how to experience blessing in this life quickly runs to what's the right program to follow. We begin to ask ourselves, what can I gain in order to make my life better and happy? We forget that we have been justified in Jesus Christ and heirs of eternal life through faith in His Son. And even worse sometimes, being given the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We can leave this place and turn it into a license to sin. We can turn it into a reason to get away. We can say, well, I'm forgiven. I'm clothed in Christ. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Nothing can condemn me. Or instead, we think that we have to pick up the law of the Lord and frustratingly do everything right to prove that we are in Jesus Christ. We can go out of this place and we can go, I'm going to prove that I have been given this gift by doing everything so perfectly right. And then when we realize we can't, we struggle, we, we, we suffer, we, we doubt, we, we begin to believe that we're not saved. It's so easy for us to give up this truth. Which is why it needs to be emblazoned upon our hearts, spoken to our souls. It needs to be on our lips and on our tongues that in Jesus Christ, this is more true than anything else you can say about any one of us. That we are in Christ, viewed by God as though we never sinned or been a sinner. As though we have been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. That changes the way that we see ourselves. That changes the way that we see each other. That changes the motive of our lives to live in praise of God. Indeed, when we confess this truth, not because we find in our faith such strength, when we confess this truth, we find that it is indeed the strength of Jesus Christ that comforts us. 
And that the only way to receive that blessing of grace in Jesus Christ is through faith. This is the testimony of Scripture. This is the testimony from beginning to end in Scripture. That salvation is by faith alone. We read that from Romans 3. We can be reminded of that in the story of Abraham, as we've already mentioned. We can read Ephesians 2. We can read 1 John 5. Page after page after page on the pages of Scripture says to us, here is how you experience, here is how you receive this blessedness of God in Jesus Christ. Here's how you get to stand justified before the Lord by believing with an empty hand in the saving work of Jesus Christ by laying hold of that jewel who is your Savior. In this this case, faith is, you know, not a good work. Faith is not something we do, but it is a surrender, a resting in, an accepting of. It is laying hold of what we desperately need. It is saying, I have no other hope but Jesus. I find no other rest than in Jesus. I have no other confidence than in Jesus. And I am convinced that his sacrifice is enough, that his service for me is enough. Indeed, it is not our faith in Jesus that is so valuable, but it is the one we lay hold of who is so valuable. It is not our faith that matters. It is our Savior whom we believe in that does. And as simple as that may be to say, that is a hard word for Christians to keep straight. Too often, we fall into the trap of believing our faith is what saves us. Indeed, we have this unfortunate tendency to have faith in faith. So that if somebody were to say to you, are you saved? Are you going to heaven? And you say, yes, yes I am. And they say to you, why? Someone once said, if you ever answer that question with with the word I or me, then you don't understand the gospel. Why are you saved? We too often say, well, because I believe. So what? Well, I believe I'm saved. Well, good for you. That doesn't mean you are. There are countless people that believe they're saved. Everybody believes they're saved. You go to any funeral, it doesn't matter if it's Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, atheist, they all believe that they've gone to some better place. Everybody believes something. So what? It is not faith that matters. Everybody believes. It is who you believe that matters. Are you going to heaven? Yes. How do you know? Because He died on the cross. That's what the world is constantly trying to get us off of. Off of Jesus and off of His grace. Off of the worship of His name. Off of the study of His name. Off of these things, they distract us and draw us away by their empty promises and by their vain entertainment. And our nature slides into denying this without a second thought. So often in the Reformed world, we are theologically Reformed, but we are practically Arminian. Works righteousness is our default practice. We believe we need to do it. We need to prove it. We need to earn our place before God. That's why when we go into trials and there is sorrow and suffering in our life, we say, God, what have I done to deserve this? 
as though that's the thing that matters. Not, God, what are you trying to teach me? God, how are you using me? God, how can I glorify you in this moment? We say, God, what have I done? Because surely that's how God deals with us, right? He deals with us on the basis of our good works. Oh, no. Oh, no, you are viewed by God as though you'd never sinned nor been a sinner, as though you were as perfectly righteous as Christ was righteous for you. What would the father do for so obedient a child? Punish them? Never. Judge them? Never. Condemn them? Never. Would God condemn Jesus? Would God judge Jesus? Would God punish Jesus? He has done those things so that you might never experience them in your life. So stop trusting yourself and stop trusting your own actions. Trust instead the grace of God. Oh, that requires, of course, an utter and total surrender, which is something we're not even good at. Here's the irony. Even our faith needs to be repented of. We're not good at faith. Even our faith is insufficient. It's weak. It's inconsistent. It's hypocritical. None of us lives out our confession the way that we ought. But here is a glorious word for all who believe in Jesus Christ. For all who know their utter unworthiness and who hear the word of God proclaimed in Jesus Christ. Here is the word to you. His grace is sufficient for you. He knows you're not perfect, not even a perfect believer. He knows you're not a mature or muscular believer, but he knows you're a believer. So look away from your pathetic attempts and revel in his glorious grace. Grieve over your sin, but rejoice over his forgiveness. And never doubt this, that God loves you. In Jesus Christ, with a perfect love. Amen.